There we go. Yeah. So, we go from that beautiful song that the ladies just sang, the unpleasant truth of Romans chapter 7. I stand before you today as someone who is addicted. I am. I'm addicted to a lot of things. Uh, Lots of you know about my addiction to ice cream. We joke about that one. You all help me with that one as you pl- for, I had several gift cards given to me around Christmas time and sharpied on them. It said for ice cream. <laughs> so thank you for feeding my addiction. We joke about it. We laugh about it. It's a thing. I like ice cream. But we could talk about some of my other addictions I have. How I have a desire to please people. I do. I want to make people happy. I want people to like me. And so there's this desire, this draw to orchestrate it so it happens. I'm a people pleaser. We could talk about my past with pornography and how I went through an addiction recovery program for it. I am a broken, sinful man. I'm addicted to things that I shouldn't be addicted to. Now, I don't want you to get on the edge of your seat and think that I'm about to confess something to you that's going to remove me from ministry. It's not going to happen. It's not that I'm hiding anything either, okay? Just throw it out there. Okay. But I'm here to confess that I'm not perfect, that I'm a sinner desperately in need of the grace of God. And I'm here to confess that I worship in a community that are sinners desperately in the need of the grace of God. And I live in a greater community, full of sinners, desperately in the need of the grace of God. We are a broken people. And the minute we stop realizing that, bad things happen. It's interesting that so many people want to move to rural America these days. We got a flood of people coming from cities into rural America, and we embrace all, like the people who are here in our group that just moved from cities into rural America. We're glad you're here. So I mean, what I'm about to say is nothing against y'all, but so many people, when I go and visit like Dallas, or when I go and visit Chicago or other bigger towns, and they're like, "Oh, you live in rural America. Oh, it must be so nice, so sweet." You know, rural America has preserved the ideals of bygone years. And they have this picture of Andy Griffith and Leave it to Beaver. And they think that's what our lives are like. And they drive through some people who live in Norfolk. They're like, oh yeah, I drive through Neely all the time. It's such a, such a nice town. So, so quiet and quaint and everyone just loves everyone. <laughs> There's some people who live in rural America who buy into that thinking too. And they think that, oh yeah, our small town is great. It is good. Nothing bad happens in our small town. And when people come in, they're like, this is a great town to raise kids in. I'm so glad you moved here because this is a great town to raise kids in. My kids were raised here. They turned out great. This is a great town to raise kids in. They're grateful for low crime rate, the ability to interact intimately with community members. They have their slow life, unlike their second cousin who's dying the quick death in the city. But all these claims and these ideals, I don't want to drag it on too much, 
our veneers over a rotting thing that is happening. The truth that actually is, that so many of us know. So I'm kind of preaching to the choir right now. Rural areas, statistically, if you pick up a psychological magazine anywhere, written by non-Christians even, they all write about rural areas, and they were talking about rural areas as the new inner city. Their rural areas are experiencing lower incomes, higher unemployment, higher poverty, and increased stress. These conditions are contributing to higher substance abuse, including alcoholism and drugs, than what is happening in the inner city. Domestic abuse is rampant in small towns. In Nebraska, you can track it. Every time the Huskers lose a football game, domestic abuse skyrockets. It's fascinating. If it wasn't so sad, it'd be humorous. And these are just the overlying facts. We could talk about what's happening in schools, how Neely has a drug problem in their school. Alcohol abuse, premarital sex, other escapes are the norm. I've had kids talk to me, boys, bragging about how many girls in Neely that they've slept with. I had another boy brag about how many pictures he has of girls in Neely who are without clothes. And he's got them, he didn't show it to me, gratefully, but he's got them all lined up in his phone. He's got two phones, one for those pictures and one for what he actually has. Broken families are all over the place here. Latchkey kids are a majority. Most students come from broken families. Pain, hopelessness, over and over and over again. And when I try to talk to them about Jesus and religion, they think it's a hoax because they look at the hypocrisy of their parents, the hypocrisy, and say, I don't want that. It must not be true. <clears throat> so much rot happening underneath the surface, even in our own community. Add into the rot mental health problems that are likely to occur at a higher rate in rural America than in inner cities nowadays. The number of suicides, even in our own community, are climbing. Depression is the norm. If a visitor stays in rural America and starts digging down, they will see what is underneath the surface. They will see the pain, the chaos, the immorality, and the hopelessness. So coming into 2024, what are we going to do about it? We, as Calvary Bible Church, we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. We claim to have the answer to life's problems found through Scripture and the Bible. And we can look at our community and we can say, oh yeah, that's it. We're going to close to ourselves over here. Or we can say, this is our community and we have the answer and we can step into it and start claiming these problems for Jesus. So for these next couple weeks, I'm gonna talk about one specific problem that is plaguing our communities. I'm gonna talk about addiction. Neely has a problem with addiction. Oakdale does too. Clearwater, Elgin, Brunswick, Creighton, Verdigree, Plainview, all of the towns that are represented by people who live here, they all have problems with addiction. Some people admit it, some people don't. But not only do those towns have problems with addiction, we as Calvary Bible Church have problems with addiction. We're all addicted to something 
Every single one of us. We could joke about my ice cream addiction, but our addictions run much deeper than that. Every single one of us has an addiction that we are hiding. So for the next week, next couple weeks, we're going to talk about addiction. I should probably define addiction for you. So let's open up a nice psychological textbook. I just had to cram the whole thing on one screen because it's just absurd. It says... Addiction is a compulsive, chronic, physiological, or psychological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity, having harmful physical, psychological, or social effects, and typically causing well-defined symptoms, such as anxiety, irritability, tremors, or nausea upon withdrawal or abstinence. Huh, that was fun. Nice, nice mouthful. When we picture addiction, when we hear addiction, many of us might picture the drug addict in a corner going through withdrawal. And we picture what they look like, we picture what's going on with their bodies, and we like that picture, many of us. It's not a pleasant one, but we like it because it removes ourselves from what addiction actually is. Most of us have never been there. We've never been addicted to a substance in that way that causes us to take on those physical characteristics. And so we look at that and we say, that's great, that's addiction, that's not me, I'm okay. Some of us have been there. And that was us. And we look at that picture and we say, yes, that is true, that was me, that is not me anymore, I am okay. I am not addicted because that is not me. But, are we? I have to push back on that good psychological definition. You see, addiction is not about physical characteristics and things that happen. Addiction is about slavery. And sometimes the chains of slavery are invisible. A better definition for addiction is this. The devotion of a person to something, whether to sin in general, or to specifics such as food, alcohol, wealth, technology, that sort of stuff in particular, so as to become dependent on it. A person will never be satisfied in such a state of slavery. We're all addicted to something. We're all dependent on something, saying this is what I need. We're all in chains to it. How do I know this? Because all sin is addiction. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before your phone because you are the God who is worthy to be sought and we are people who are so desperately needy. But unfortunately, too often in our lives, instead of turning to you as the one who will supply all of our needs, we turn to all these things in the world to say, please supply. Lord, forgive us of that. Forgive us of not living our lives as followers of you, but living our lives as followers of the world. For not declaring every day with our actions and with our mouth that you are the supplier of everything, but instead declaring every day that we don't trust you and we're gonna go our own way. Lord, forgive us of that. And when we are entrenched in something, Father, I pray that you would reveal it and kick it out of our lives and we'd give, have the guts to stand up and get out of that rut and turn to you, the one we adore. Father, as I am here, I pray 
that you would give me the strength I need to get through this sermon. And I pray that you would increase while I decrease. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Let's talk about sin, shall we? It's not a pleasant thing to talk about, but let's talk about sin. What is sin? We could use a nice, good theological definition for sin. Nice, good theological definition is an action that violates the law or moral standard of God. That is the nice, good theological definition of sin. Or we could throw out a nice pastoral counseling definition for sin. A nice pastoral counseling definition for sin is sin is transgression of God's will. This can manifest in words, deeds, or thoughts. Basically the same, a little bit of variation in words. But instead of devoting ourselves to academic definitions, let's talk about what the Bible says. Let's go back to the beginning of time. God created Adam and Eve at the beginning of time. I've talked about this multiple times in the past few months because everything started back then, literally. God created the world, seven days, six days, one day he rested. Sixth day, he creates man and woman, places them in the Garden of Eden. He gives them one simple rule found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Beginning of time, God is in relationship with his creation. He spends time with Adam and Eve every day, all day. They're communing together. They're talking. He is providing everything they need, not just physically, but emotionally, because he's the God who sustains. He's the God who provides, and he proves it over and over and over and over and over and over again to Adam and Eve. He even protects them from harm at the beginning of time, because he says, hey, there's this tree over here. Bad things are going to happen if you eat it. Stay away from it. That's an act of protection. So God is providing. God is protecting. Life is good until that fateful day. And what happens on that fateful day? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. The woman sees the fruit of the knowledge of tree. The tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's always a mouthful. He see, she sees it's good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. She takes some and she eats it. Then she says, hey, husband. She gives it to her husband who's with her and he eats it. They sin. Whatever definition you want to do it. They violate the law of God. They transgress his will. They sin. But why? Why do they sin? Lots of times, when we think of sins, like the Ten Commandments, we think of them as a list, and then we say, oh yeah, I didn't do that one, 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 I was a sinner. And we think of it as a yes-no answer. And that's where we leave it at. I lied to my sister, that was bad, I'm sorry, sister. And we got it taken care of. But we don't go behind the sin. Yes, Adam and Eve transgressed the will of God. Yes, Adam and Eve broke, violated the law of God, but why did they sin? Did they just wake up one moment and say, you know what? I'm going to break God's law. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happens with us either. There is a leading up to it. So what happened? They had a nice little chat with the serpent, and it's not going to be on the screen. Genesis chapter 3, you can just listen to it. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. (laughs) Adam and Eve were convinced in that moment that God was withholding something back from them, that he wasn't actually supplying everything that they needed And therefore, since God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who promised he would give everything that they needed, was withholding, therefore, they should supply for themselves. And they looked at the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they saw that it was promising to supply what was lacking. And so they said, God's not supplying it. That's going to supply it. And they see that it's good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for providing that which was lacking, gaining wisdom. Eve takes some, eats it, gives it to her husband, and he eats it. We know the result of that day. We know what happened. Relationships everywhere, shattered. Marriage relationship, shattered. Relationship between humanity and humanity, shattered. Relationship between humanity and creation, shattered. Ultimately, the relationship between humanity and God, shattered bringing pain upon pain, ultimately death, both physical and spiritual death. And from that day on, humanity has been doomed to sin. Doomed to sin. The Bible describes this doom as chains and slavery. Paul simply writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Peter writes more in depth on this topic in 2 Peter chapter 2. The context is, in, is false teachers. But he says, These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The blackest darkness is reserved for them. For their mouth, they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Everyone who has been born in this world is a slave to sin. They are in chains to sin. Everyone who has ever breathed is in chains to sin. To what has mastered them. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 earlier, in Romans 3, 10 to 18, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. We as humanity, if we have opened our eyes and breathed, if we are living, we must sin. We have an overwhelming desire to sin. And every time we do it, we reap the consequences of it. Every time we break one of God's laws or transgress his will, we experience the pain of sin. Sometimes that pain is immediate, Sometimes it's later on. 
There's people who live long lives of sin and they're like, we're fine, but their pain is coming. Their pain is coming because the pain always comes in this life and ultimately in the next. Before I get carried away, I need to talk about addiction because sin is addiction. We talked about sin, but let's, let's, let's talk about addiction. Why do we sin? We talked about Adam and Eve. They didn't just wake up one moment and say, I want to break God's law. There was a process to it. Why do we sin? We are compelled to sin because of our nature. Yes, Paul writes this in Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. We have a sinful nature. Therefore, what we do is sin and what we do is tainted by sin. Everything is because of sin. So yes, we have a nature, therefore we sin, but why? Not only do we have nature we sin, but we willingly choose every day to sin. It's not like we are, we are drawn by someone with a gun to our head and said, you must do this. We willingly say, I want to do this, but why do we do it? We believe that it will give us something. Every time we sin, every time we say, I know God says this, but I am doing this, there is a reason for it. There is a promise that that thing is giving us. Every time we follow an addiction, it's not because I just lost my train of thought. Wow. Every time we follow an addiction, it's because there's a promise that is given, and therefore we follow that promise, thinking that this thing is going to provide something for me. Maybe we believe that this thing is going to give me pleasure. Like our author of Hebrews says this about Moses in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because face it, sin is pleasurable. It is. It's the reason why all the high schoolers in Neely are doing the things they're doing because there is pleasure in it. Sin is pleasure. And we believe the lie that that pleasure is going to be enough to satisfy. But it's not. Maybe it's not pleasure that we're pursuing. Maybe we want power. And the thing we're pursuing promises to give us power. Maybe we want to boost our ego. Maybe we want to have escape from the pains of this life. Maybe we want closeness with someone else. Maybe we want to feel accepted or wanted or loved. Maybe we want to accomplish something. And we believe that this path, this sinful path, is the only way to accomplish it. And the ends justify the means. There's so many excuses we give for, the, for why we sin. There are so many things, myriads of things, that the things of this world promise us that they will provide. It's like Christian and faithful walking through Vanity Fair. And all the wares of this world crying out to them, me, taste me, take me, feel me. Because anything you ever want is right here at your fingertips. That's what the world every day is saying. The things of this world, the desires of this world. Take me, take me. I will fulfill that desire if you just do it. But it comes down to this. We believe the lie that the sin that is before us will actually provide what God can only provide. And so in that moment, we say, no God, I don't want your provision. I want this. I want rest from this. I want acceptance from this. I want a sense of self-worth from this. I want escape from this. I want this. I don't want you, God. And we place our hands 
in bonds to this substitute of God and become its slaves. Because the moment we sin in this way, the moment we say, I want what this promises rather than God, what you have declared you will give, we place ourselves in shackles to this thing. And yes, we do experience a taste of what it provides. It's just a taste. It's not enough. But we experienced it. And so the next time that desire pops up, we say, well, well, yeah, God, I know you promised to provide this, but, but this gave me that taste, that experience. So we put ourselves more into the bondage because we want that taste a little more. And then we want that taste a little bit more. And then when it tastes a little more, God, I know you're there, but this is providing me what I need. This is providing me what I need. And we go down into the depths of the abyss and we can't climb back up because the chains are just too much. Just too much. Adam and Eve did experience what they wanted to experience on that day. They did experience a form of enlightening. They saw the difference between good and evil. They did. And because of that choice they took, all of humanity were doomed to living in the evil with the absence of the good. With it slapped in our face every single day. In the same way, we're doomed. Once we step into a relationship of dependency on something other than God, we're doomed to serving that thing. We are. We could talk about all sorts of different addictions. It's one reason, just as a side, I don't drink alcohol. I don't. There's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. The Bible actually mentions some good things that come from drinking alcohol. But I know my addictions from the past. And I don't want to place myself in any more chains. And so I say, no, I'm not going to do it. Just in case. Because those chains, those chains, once they're around you, they're so hard to get off. I still struggle with addiction. When I was in my recovery program back in the day, and people asked me why I, was, why I couldn't go to this thing on Monday nights. I'd tell them I'm going to this recovery program. And I'm going there because I'm, addic- I'm recovering from pride, from people-pleasing, and from pornography. All were of equal importance in my mind because they were all interrelated with each other. And I wanted freedom from those chains. And those issues, those desires still pop up from time to time. They do. Because once you feel the chains, you get used to them around you. And even you don't want, though you don't want the bondage, you still want the feeling. Last night, my son woke me up because he was cold, and I'm warm, and he wanted to get warm. So he cuddled up with me, and I can't sleep. Whenever my kids are cuddling up with me, it just doesn't work. Can't do it. If anyone touches me, I can't sleep. So feel sorry for my wife. She, she cuddles up to me, she falls asleep, and I'm like, sorry, dear, I got to sleep. Maybe that's a little too much information, I don't know. So my son came, crawled into bed with me to get warm. He fell asleep, adequate amount of time came, I knew he would keep still sleep once I put him back to bed. Put him back to bed, 
in the middle of the night, and thoughts pop into my head. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm stressed. I want relief. Maybe I should go here on the internet. The thoughts pop up. They do. By the grace of God, it didn't happen. I went back to bed. And then I dreamed all night about all these things I'd filled my mind with 20 years ago. The struggle is real. No matter what we're addicted to, no matter what we put ourselves in bondage with, the struggle is real. It is. Lies are so easily believed, and they slip in our minds, and they stay. I still struggle with addiction. Yes, I do, because I'm still a sinner. I meddle in a whole bunch of other sins like impatience, hypocrisy, self-dependence, lust. I could keep going on a long list of sins that God continually convicts me of and tells me to get rid of the addiction, shake the chains off. And every sin creates a dependence that rips me away from God, a dependence that I yearn for even though God is there saying, I will fulfill all your needs. Just turn to me. Just turn to me. We could talk about the addictions that are in this room. We could talk about the addictions in our community, sexual addiction, substance abuse, alcoholism, technology abuse, but the answer is all the same. The thing promises something that only God can provide, and so we grow dependent on it rather than God, and we reap the result of that brokenness over and over and over again from, through broken relationships, through pain, ultimately through death, physically and spiritually. We are all sinners, every single one of us. We're all addicted to something because we all sin. One of the chapters that was very instrumental in my understanding of God's grace is Romans chapter 7. Again, this is not going to be on the screen, but you can listen to it. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 19. Paul writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. The thing about sin and addiction, once our hands are in those chains, we cannot break the chains. Is it impossible for us to break the chains, to get out of the chains that bind us. Paul calls out in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Oh, what wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The irony of sin and addiction is that we can readily get ourselves into those chains. We can so easily do it. But once we do, we can't get ourselves out of those chains. We cannot do it. The more we struggle against them, the tighter the bonds happen. Have you ever seen this? Chinese finger trap. I remember the first time I was in one. I was probably six, seven years old. It was Christmas time at my grandparents' house on their upstairs, and one of my older cousins comes with this grin on his face, and he says, here, try this. Put your fingers in it. I did. And then I panicked, and I pulled even harder. And I panicked some more. I'm like, this thing's not coming off. They're going to have to cut my fingers off. It's just to get this off. This is horrible. And then after like 15 minutes, he showed me how to get out of it. 
If you don't know the Chinese finger trap, picture a pool of quicksand. Same concept. If you ever get stuck in quicksand, this is a real picture of a man and his horse who got stuck in quicksand and they're getting him out. If you're ever stuck in quicksand, the horse is off the screen in case you're wondering. If you're stuck in quicksand, you will notice that the more you struggle, the quicker you fall. Same thing with the Chinese finger trap. The more you struggle, the stucker you get. It doesn't happen. So, how do you get out of a Chinese finger trap? How do you get out of quicksand? You stop. You stop struggling. And when you stop struggling, then you have a chance of getting out. Sin and addiction is the same thing. We cannot work our way out of sin and addiction. None of us can muster enough self-control and wherewithal to struggle our way out of it. We can't. The first step of getting out of addiction is to stop fighting and to admit the reality that we are powerless over our addictions, our brokenness, our sinful patterns, that in our own power, our lives are unmanageable. That is the truth. Paul writes it this way. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I cannot get rid of sin on my own. If I keep trying to will my way to perfection, it's not going to happen. It's an exercise in futility. I'll just get more and more and more into this sin addiction because if I try to get myself out of it, I'm relying on myself, which means I'm pursuing pride, which is another set of shackles. And then I'm trying to hide it from someone else, and so I'm pursuing hypocrisy which is another set of shackles. And then I'm still trying to work my way out of it, but, but if I tell someone else about it, and so I lie, which is another set of shackles. If we keep trying to get ourselves out of things, it's just shackles upon shackles, bondage upon bondage, until we're hopelessly in the abyss without despair, with despair. We have to admit that we are powerless of our addictions, brokenness, and sinful patterns, that in our own power, our lives are unmanageable. Who do we admit this to? Well, we admit it to ourselves. We have to. We have to look in the mirror and say, Peter Sample, you are addicted. You're addicted to this, you're addicted to this, you're addicted to this, and you're hopelessly addicted. You cannot do anything about it, Peter. You have to admit it to yourself. Because we cannot change unless we start speaking the truth. Once we speak the truth, we also have to admit to God. We have to confess him the truth. We have to acknowledge that we, can, we understand what he says is true about us. We admit it that yes, I confess God, this is who he say I am. I am a sinner and I can't do anything to change it myself. No amount of prayers, no matter of good works, no amount of this, no matter of that can change the fact that I'm a sinner doomed in my sin. And then we have to also admit it to those around us. Their lives are a mess because of what we've done. And there's nothing we can do about it. So many of us want to keep up a facade and to say, yeah, everything's okay. When the irony is, everything's not okay and they'll continue to not be okay until we're willing to vocalize and say, this is who I am, this is my mess, and I can't change it, I need help. I know most of you all's junk. Some of you I don't know. 
Some of you I can guess. But it's not enough for me to know. So many of you struggle with the same stuff. And you're going to keep struggling until one day someone has the guts to stand up and say, this is me. This is the sin in my life. I'm sick and tired of the chains that bind me. And then someone else will pop up and say, I struggle with that too. And together, come together and seek the healing from God. But that happens together. As we pursue the family that God has designed his church to be. And then once we start seeking God's help together, people on the outside start looking in and they see, whoa, what's going on? Because we've heard that these struggles that are happening can't be really be healed from. But it's happening here. What's going on? Who is this Jesus? There's something different here. Paul cries out, Romans chapter 7, what wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Then he says in verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is hope. There is hope. Once we admit who we are really, the ugly truth that is there, we can then step into belief. Belief in who God is that we says is actually true. But that's going to be next week. Until then, may we speak the truth, admitting that we are nothing, that we are powerless, that in our own power, our lives are unmanageable, and we need a Savior. Father, thank you that you give us hope and you give us peace, that you are the God who steps into our chaos and brings order. You're the God who steps into our brokenness and brings wholeness. You're the God who steps into us and says, I want to make you me. Lord, thank you. You don't give up on us. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth of how you see it instead of what we want it to be. And may we rejoice and find freedom in agreeing with you. Thanks, Father. Rise if you are able and sing with me.